Good morning. Uh, we are uh, in an exciting passage. There are, there are some passages in Scripture that um, may seem hard to believe, may seem too harsh, may seem too confusing. But this passage, along with Psalm 24, I think, is one of the passages that we can't even start with. Because it has an assumption that our culture doesn't understand. And it's the assumption that Psalm 24 also is asking. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who could stand in the presence of God? It's this passage, our Hebrews passage, is basically trying to offer a solution to a problem we don't think we have. Because we don't think it's that big a deal, do we? To come into the presence of God. We... Maybe we believe in a God or God, our culture, inside and outside the church, but we probably think more of God like a grandfather, right? He's like a nice, cuddly, old grandpa who sort of will give us what we want when we come to him. Want him to, he wants us to give him some attention and uh, not very harsh, not like our parents. Or we believe in a God that really is made more in our image, Right? It's made in, the, made in the image of a culture that is obsessed with everything instant, instant access, instant gratification. We get tweets from the president. We get live feed of the most famous celebrities that we adore. We get access to everything we want, practically. So how could anyone ever say to you or I, you need permission? to come to anyone. You need permission to come into the presence of God. Who are you to tell me I need permission? Do you get that sense? In, in our culture, in this overly instant and, and, and uh, easy culture, we think we can just stroll in to the presence of God. We think we can not need to change anything, and surely we don't need something as crazy as a priest. So I, can th I think that this passage can seem like it's shouting to a deaf person when we read it in our culture. And so I'm starting with this because we all need to, as much as we can, get outside of our culture's obsession with all those things, the, the sense of entitlement, the sense of privilege and instant access, somehow get outside of that and realize, like virtually every religion in the history of the world, that we need a priest. Because if we think we are entitled to the presence of God, we're not going to think we need a priest. We're going to think we can stroll right into Grandpa's presence. But, if we, tr if we do realize that God, as we're told in Scripture, is a consuming fire, that at Mount Sinai, Israel actually says to Moses, Moses, don't let God speak to us lest we die, but you speak to us. Because they knew that if they would even touch the, mount the mountain, that they would be struck down. Unless we get a taste of that, a sense of that, that can be so countercultural, we're not going to understand this passage, because it starts off by assuming we need a priest. But once we do 
get that sense that we really do need some sort of go-between, some sort of mediator in between uh, uh, alleyway to get into God's presence, then we're going to see what the book of Hebrews is talking about, which is this amazing, pure, perpetual, perfect priest. That's where we're going to go. Let's pray. God, you are good and holy and magnificent and majestic. We come on this Lord's day knowing that you have brought us from death to life, from darkness to light, from sin to righteousness, and we ask that you would speak to us by your word. May your spirit be mighty, Lord. May you comfort the downtrodden and the brokenhearted, and may you convict those who are stubborn and hard-hearted of your word and truth and of your goodness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in the, in the book of Hebrews, we are jumping back into an argument that he had started all the way back in chapters 4 and 5, and he had taken a sort of a parenthesis to warn them and to exhort them not to drift away. Don't be like those who hear all these great things and drift. But he had wanted to talk about this guy named Melchizedek back in chapter 4 and 5. So chapter 4 ends with, We don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So he starts talking about a high priest. And then chapter 5, he says, Being made perfect, he, Jesus, became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And he wants to tell them about Melchizedek, but then takes two chapters uh, of a parenthesis, and now we're after that warning, after that encouragement, and he's going to actually explain why he thinks Melchizedek, this uh, bizarre, mysterious figure in Scripture, why is this guy so important? And why is it important for us to understand Jesus' own priesthood in light of that? And so we're going to look at this explanation of his priesthood and why Jesus is, one, perpetual in his priesthood, two, he's promised, three, he's pure, and therefore he is perfect. You like how I got all P's for priest? Thank you. <laughs> First, he is perpetual. Now, he's got to make an argument even before he gets to the perpetual argument, although it's kind of combined with it, to argue that he is a legitimate priest because as he references the tribe of Judah later, everyone knows that, that Jesus didn't come from the line of Aaron. He's not a normal Levite priest like they would have had in the Old Testament. Now remember, outside of our culture, in, in basically every religion in the history of the world, there have been priests and there have been temples, and it may sound bizarre to us, but try to, to remember that this is the context that they are living in, that he's writing to largely a Jewish audience, Jewish Christian audience, and so they all know about the system of the temple and the system of the priests, and you needed, if you wanted to come into the presence of God, you needed a priest. And so the Levites were the, the standard bearers, the torch bearers, and they would be the priests of the temple in Jerusalem. But he's saying Jesus' priesthood is not like that, but he's still going to be a priest. He's still legitimate. So the first way he argues that is to look at Genesis 14, which he summarizes. That's the first time Melchizedek shows up. Pretty bizarre uh, uh, engagement with Abraham. 
He just shows up on the scene for about 10 verses and then disappears until the Psalms. Uh, but the story in Genesis 14 is important for the argument to show that Jesus is a legitimate priest. So he meets with Abraham, the patriarch, and he is called priest of the Most High God in Genesis 14. Abraham, as the passage mentions, gives him a tenth of his spoils, a tenth of the, of the victory that he had won. And the author of Hebrews wants us to, to see how special, and he wants to almost point to the credentials of Melchizedek. Melchizedek is the first guy named priest in the Old Testament. And he is, Abraham, Abraham was, was high up on the Jewish mind, right? But Abraham is tithing to Melchizedek. That's part of what the author wants to argue. So how much greater must Melchizedek be? He came before the Levites. Levites don't show up until the law comes in Exodus. Hundreds of years later, we're back in Genesis, Genesis 14. So he's way before the Levites, and he has, he doesn't need a sort of ancestry. He doesn't have to trace it back to some physical descent, and he doesn't need a successor. And so he points to these credentials to say, look, Jesus is a priest, but he's a priest like Melchizedek was a priest. So you can trust his priesthood, but then he goes to Melchizedek for another reason. Not only is it le legitimizing his priesthood, it shows that his priesthood is perpetual. And that's when he quotes Psalm 110. And Psalm 110, I didn't check the data, but if I had to guess, it's the most quoted psalm in, in the New Testament. If not most quoted, top two or three. Jesus himself quotes it when he tricks the Pharisees, but he quotes uh, verse 1, so it's clearly a messianic psalm. Jesus quotes it talking about the promise to David, the Lord says to my Lord. And he, he, he sort of tricks the Pharisees in the Gospels. But not only is it about David as king, it's about David as receiving this mysterious promise as priest too. So in, in verse 4, which is what Hebrews quotes, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is a promise given to David or the son of David that was to come, the Messiah. And there arose, really beginning in this psalm and later prophets and later Jewish tradition, there arose this messianic hope of not only a king like David, but a priest. And some traditions would think that there would be sort of two types of Messiah figures that would play that role, a priest and a king. Some people thought there would be the one priest king. And spoiler alert, Jesus is both. He's the priest king that this psalm is prophesying. And the book of Hebrews wants us to pick up first on this forever aspect. He is forever a priest. Verses 23 to 25 read, The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost. And that word is, is uttermost or always or absolutely or completely. He is able to save to those who, are, those who draw near to God through him 
since he always lives to make intercession for them. Now think about that for a minute. What are the things in your life that are forever? Always. Will never change. We don't have very many things like that, especially in our culture, right? If anything, we have the opposite, and we want the opposite. We want the things that will change the fastest. Can you imagine a relationship with Christ that knows and relies on him being the same yesterday, today, and forever? That he's not going to wake up one day and, and say, I retire? Or wake up one day and say, sorry, I'm, I need a vacation? That it's forever? That it's always? That this, this fear of tomorrow that so, much, so many of us have doesn't hold here? Doesn't make sense? The tomorrow, Christ will be the priest king that we need. He will be the mediator that we need. Because it's dependent on that indestructible life that we're told he has. He is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. He is a priest forever. Man, the way that I think our hearts and souls get so consumed by our culture, it's almost like we don't, we don't know what to do with this. And maybe the Sabbath, maybe Sunday is a taste where we can actually rest. Because no matter what else we may know in the world, we know that Jesus is the Messiah, is the Lord, is your intercessor and Savior of sinners today. And he will be that on Monday. The author is trying to give his audience this sense of comfort and assurance that he will be yours tomorrow and forever. But as if that's not enough, he reminds us of part of what he argued in chapter 6. So he's not only a perpetual priest, he's a promised priest. And he makes somewhat of a big deal. This is kind of a minor point, but he makes a big deal out of it, so I do want to mention it. That Jesus is a priest according to an oath. The Levite priests were not priests according to an oath. They were just priests by physical descent. The high, the high priest dies, the next guy comes up, rises to the next, to, to, to be the high priest until he dies. And you may remember in chapter 6, we read this amazing uh, passage about God's promises. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. This is from chapter 6. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. God went out of his way to swear an oath. And remember, God doesn't have to swear an oath. God normally just speaks and we should be able to just take God's word for God's word. It's his word. He doesn't have to say, and I swear by myself. But in this case, he does. 
And that's where the passage goes on to say we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That's the end of chapter 6, which our passage picks up on. As a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. So if he's promised, if he's sworn by God, then how much more of a sure and secure foundation do we have? That not only will he last forever, he is a solid rock. He is the solid rock that everything else may uh, uh, wash on, over on and will not move. Is that the Jesus that you know, that you worship? Do you have anything else in life that compares to that? He is sure and secure. But the third part I want to spend a little more time on, and the, the P is pure. He is pure. In verse 26, we read, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Now, first, I want us to ask, is he talking about Jesus now, ascended, or is he talking about Jesus when he was incarnate? Really, I think in this passage, he's talking about both. But the book of Hebrews actually spends a lot more time on Jesus now. He is ascended. He is your priest right now. He intercedes for you right now. He is separated from sinners and holy and innocent right now. And he was that when he was incarnate. And he was holy and he was separated from sinners. And he did sacrifice himself once for all. But it's fitting that that was the case when he was incarnate. And it's fitting that he is that ascended as king, exalted as Lord of lords. But why is it fitting? Why does he say it's fitting for us? Well, it wouldn't do any good if he had sinned, right? If, if, if Jesus, like the former priests, like the Levites, who had to sacrifice for their own sin and for the sins of the people, they had to keep doing it over and over as the sins of the priests continued to accumulate, as the sins of the people continued to accumulate. And so we get a hint of a kind of principle here with Jesus' atonement. It's a, it's a principle that goes something like this. Christ's sinlessness corresponds to our sinfulness, such that as much as he is sinless is as much of our sin that he can take. Let me try to explain that. Meaning, if he has one little part of sin in his nature... It's almost like he doesn't have space for ours. And there's a similar uh, ancient principle that, that I think will help you. I think it comes back from, uh, goes back to Athanasius, where he said, what is unassumed is unredeemed. Meaning, any part of humanity that Jesus did not take on, that part's not redeemed. So if Jesus was only 
a human body but didn't have a human mind, then our mind is not redeemed. Can't save it. Or if he just looked like a human but wasn't really a human, how could he be our substitute? I think there's something like that going on here. That Jesus was kept holy and innocent and separated from sinners. Absolutely sinless. So that he could absolutely take on our sin. And contrary to really every other form of religion that comes down to a type of works righteousness, Christianity keeps these two extremes always at the forefront. That God in Jesus Christ is absolutely holy and pure. And that will never change. We should never want that to change. We should want God to judge sin and evil. That will never change. And that we are wholly lost and sinful without a mediator. Those two extremes are always trying to be brought down by us. We don't want that gap to be that big. And every other religion, every other philosophy or world worldview, whether they call it God or not, makes that gap small. Because they want to bring either humanity up. Actually, humanity is not that bad. I think we can, you know, God just needs to give us a little bump and then we'll be good. Or God's not that far from us. So he, where he's brought down to our level. We don't have to do either of those things. Do you see why? Do you see why we don't have to act as if our sin isn't that bad? We can be honest. You can be honest to your priest who loves you and knows you because there is no sin that's going to outdo his sinlessness. There's no sin that's going to surprise him. There's no sin that's going to actually mar him and make him less holy. It's not like you're going to be shaming the presence of God. Oh, I never heard that one. Now he's going to blush. He's not going to blush at your sin. You can be honest because of this. This is amazing news. This is actually great news. And I think it's a fundamental truth of Christianity that much of the world does not understand that those two extremes are crucial and we can't lose them. They sound like bad news, don't they? You mean humanity is really that far gone? You mean we really need God in human form to die a death? Yes, that is what we need. It's worse than you thought. But there really is one who crossed that gap. That's why it's good news. We're not left with the gap. We're left with our perfect priest. Our access to God is always based on that perfect priest. This is another important implication, I think. Sometimes if we have a good week, then we really think God's going to answer our prayers. You really got to listen to me now, God. That's just as bad, maybe worse, than thinking, I had a bad week, God's surely not going to listen to me. I don't know, they're both, let's keep them on even playing. But they both deny the work of Jesus the priest, 
who's supposed to be the one uh, mediator, the one access. He is our merit on which we stand in the presence of God. So that if you think you've had a bad week so you can't come to God, your assumption was you weren't coming because of Christ. And you think you're, if you had a good week and you're going to come because you were good, and he's really going to listen to you now because you were good, then you're also assuming they're not coming because of Christ. Christ is the one who paid your debt. Christ is the one who filled your bank account. It's Christ who does it. And so your access to God. And really, the book of Hebrews over and over comes back to this, that we can draw near. We can draw near. We don't want to go back to that temple. The Jews were tempted to go back to a more comfortable life where they wouldn't face persecution and they could stick with this sacrificial temple system that they knew how it worked and it was more clear and you had, all right, let's sacrifice the animal, we're good. We don't need to go back to that. This is way better. Over and over, Hebrews is saying Jesus is more superior. He's more superior than the angels. He's more superior than Moses. He's more superior than Joshua, than the law, the ceremonial law here. And he's even more superior than the Levitical priests. And so he is perfect. He's perfect. This too is a, a, a really, it would be a really fun word study for you nerds out there to study where perfect comes up in the book of Hebrews. So in chapter 2, we, we learn about Christ. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Chapter 5, I read it earlier, being made perfect. He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Those two are about Christ. He's about to start talking about us. Verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, then da-da-da-da-da-da-da, goes on with his argument. And then in verse 28, the way that our passage ends, for the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. So that again applies to Jesus in verse 28. Seems like verse 11, he's about to start talking about how perfection applies to us, but he's going to wait a little bit longer. What does it mean to say that Jesus is perfect? Sounds kind of Sunday school-like. Well, it means a lot. It means that he has finished his work, that he is complete. It's the same word, although uh, probably used in a different sense, but on the cross, Jesus says it is finished. But he's not only just saying it's finished. He's saying it's complete. There's nothing lacking. There's no mistake. He didn't forget to do something. There's no sin that he has to go back and die for again. There's no other sacrifice that we need. And in chapter 3 of Hebrews, we are told we are to share in Christ. We have a heavenly calling in Jesus. Our access is perfect. Psalm 24, to come back to it, starts off by 
We heard it read. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. And then it asks that question. Who could ever ascend the hill of the Lord? Who could ever enter into the presence of the Most High? And he answers the question. He says, the one who is righteous. The one who doesn't steal and doesn't, what is it? Clean hands, pure heart. Doesn't lift up his soul to what is false. Doesn't swear deceitfully. It's a prophecy about Jesus, the one who only is the one who perfectly fulfilled that. But then the way it ends, lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is the king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Who is he talking to? He's talking to the temple personified the temple to say, lift up your gates, this, this heavenly temple in Zion. Open the way for your king of glory to come in. That's our forerunner. That's the forerunner who has been made our perfect priest after the order of Melchizedek. And what does a forerunner do? He holds on to the ship that's still out in harbor, that we're still left as pilgrim people but he secures our access up through the gates of the temple, up through the gates of heaven. This is a vision of Jesus entering, having won his victory, and us entering in his train. That's why it's so important that we see we need a priest, and that Jesus really is that perpetual, pure, promised, and perfect priest. Is that the way that you approach God? Do you approach him knowing that he has completely done his work for you? How much greater of an encouragement could we receive than to draw near to him? All the things that we think should keep us away from God and should keep us away from church and from the community are things that shouldn't. Those aren't reasons. As I've said before, usually those are reasons actually that we should go through Jesus. Those are the things he died for. Those are the things he is now interceding for. He is our representative. He is our human representative in heaven right now. Let's come to him. Let's draw near. Amen.